She would be the prohibitive favorite for the Kentucky Oaks. Uh, but about Gamine's positive drug test, we'll discuss. Plus, fixed odds wagering is slowly migrating across the pond from Europe here to North America. Will it change the way horse race betting is done? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hip-hopping finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcaster app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And while you're homebound these days, maybe fire off a comment to the astrophysicists at America's Best Racing so they include us in their Fan Choice Awards this year for Best Podcast. That would salvage one good thing for 2020. It's Gamine dominating this field. She has opened up. She's in front now by eight lengths. This is a tremendous performance by this three-year-old filly. Gamine won by the length of the stretch. She won by 15 to win the grade one Long Jeans Acorn. This devastating win has made Gamine the prohibitive favorite to win the rescheduled Kentucky Oaks on September 4th. Gamine sits 12th on the Oaks points list, and her Hall of Fame trainer Bob Baffert has indicated that Gamine's next start will likely be the seven furlong test stakes at Saratoga on August 8th. But we want to talk about a different kind of test for Gamine, a positive drug test. Gamine tested positive for an overage of the drug lidocaine following her win in early May at Oaklawn Park in Arkansas. One of Baffert's main derby hopes, Charlatan, also tested positive for the same drug, but we're not focusing on him since an unrelated injury has knocked him off the Kentucky Derby Trail. Lidocaine is a permitted medication, but her level was above the threshold. Both split samples have come back positive, according to the Arkansas Racing Commission. Of course, Gamine's and Charlatan's connections will forfeit their purse money from their Oaklawn races, and Baffert has been fined at least $500 and suspended for 15 days, which will start on August 1st. When a human is caught with a banned substance, that person is banned from competition for a period of time. Now, I understand that A, horses do not get to choose whether banned substances show up in their systems or not, B, a drug like lidocaine is meant for a short-term benefit rather than a long-term benefit, as would be the case with anabolic steroids. Nonetheless, a horse is still a living, breathing animal like a human is. This January, the ARCI adopted a rule that any horse receiving an injection of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like lidocaine cannot race for 14 days. It was 49 days between Gamine's two races. But the question remains, should any horse that tests positive be banned from competition for the next, I don't know, 30 days, 60 days, or more? It's a question rarely asked in thoroughbred racing, but we're going to discuss just that with the executive director of the Racing Medication and Testing Consortium, Dr. Mary Scalay. We won't bore you by listing all of Dr. Scalay's credentials in equine medicine and regulation, because it could take a while. She's got a ton of them. 
Welcome, Dr. Scalay. It takes a long time to get both samples back when a horse's A sample tests positive. Gamine's positive test was made known on May 27th. She won the acorn, in stakes record time as you heard, on June 20th. Now, we're not referring specifically to Gamine. This question applies to any horse with a positive A sample. Is that horse still considered innocent until proven guilty until the B sample comes back, which just happened? Or should the horse not be allowed to run with the suspicion of a positive test? Well, the way the rules work right now, until the split sample comes back or the trainer declines to have a split sample analysis, you are innocent until proved guilty. So the A sample alone does not constitute cause for action. Presumably, a person who was caught doping voluntarily took the necessary steps to do so. A racehorse clearly did not on its own. A human or humans made those decisions. How much does that factor into what should happen to the horse in the adjudication of this kind of situation? Well, from my perspective, I think that's probably substance-specific. We do, in the model rules, have provisions for horses to be placed on the vet's list and ineligible to enter until they've had a a negative test. In some cases, there's a, a period of time assigned with that, particularly for substances like EPO, where the effect of the drug can certainly persist far longer than our ability to detect it in the horse's system. So it to me, it, those sorts of decisions need to be based on the potential for the substance to impact the horse. So what you're saying is it does matter when assessing the condition and future of the horse itself, whether the drug in question is said to have a short-term benefit as opposed to a longer-term benefit like an anabolic steroid. Yes, that's fair. I mean, I think there are certain, at this point, potentially hypothetical conditions that could result in a horse being permanently banned from the sport. Um, We talk now about gene doping, and if that were detected in a horse where the horse's, you know, metabolism, let's say, has been genetically and permanently modified, that horse, in my estimation, would be, you know, that would be a lifetime ban for the horse. There's no, no redeeming that. Dr. Mary Scalay, Executive Director of the Racing Medication and Testing Consortium, joins us here on Indigate. When you deal with human doping, you not only consider the punitive nature of the punishment, but you also deal with the medical component as well. Presumably, if and when that person is allowed to return to competition, that person's body should not still be deriving the benefit of the illegal drug. So... With horses, how do you take into account both the medical and punitive nature of a suspension? Well, if we could take a step back for just a second, there is a profound philosophical difference between human athletic doping control and medication regulation in equine sport. And so our regulation of these substances addresses two things. One, doping, performance-enhancing substances, we, we are very concerned about that and pursue those aggressively. But we also have an ethical obligation to the horse and the jockey on his back or the driver in the sulky behind him. So we regulate therapeutic medications to prevent the possibility of a horse's physical condition from being obscured such that an unsound or unwell horse is 
facilitated in getting out onto the racetrack and potentially being at risk of, of injury or accident. So you kind of have to have a different perspective than human sport. As an example, Mepivacaine, which is a local anesthetic, you know, we don't allow it to be present in a horse on race day because of the potential for it to be used in an illicit manner, blocking a nerve or providing local or regional anesthesia that could allow an unsound horse to get out there and compete. That is a concern for us. It is not prohibited in competition in human sport. You can throw the javelin with your shoulder blocked. You cannot race a horse with a, an ankle blocked. So the punitive aspect has to contemplate those substances as well as, as doping. And to me, that means a more spectrum approach to how to deal with that horse after a report of finding. In some cases, horses that have had a positive test are required to breeze for the regulatory veterinarian and be subjected to post-work testing consistent with what's done post-race to ensure that the substance is no longer present in the horse's body and that the horse's condition is accurately represented so that we can know it is, is safe and sound for that horse to return to competition. Safe and sound is one thing. Performance is another. I presume you do see the optics not looking so great when Gamine for Bob Baffert tests positive for lidocaine in May, comes back in June, wins the acorn by 20 lengths. And I'm assuming that the horse was subjected to post-race testing the day that it won, and there was no evidence for regulated medications or prohibited substances in the horse's sample. And to the extent that the horse had lidocaine on board uh, in its earlier race, that had no impact on its performance in the subsequent race. I want to take it from another different perspective here. So the B sample comes back positive. The human connections mm -hmm. of the horse forfeit their purse money from the race in question, and the trainer is typically suspended for a period of time, which depends on the severity of the, of the infraction, as happened to Bob Baffert. But as we mentioned earlier, there is practically never a penalty issued to the horse. The horse can continue to race as long as there's no more drugs illegal on race day in the system. But that horse will run in either the original trainer's care if the suspension is over or another's. When a trainer is suspended, he or she typically turns the horse over to someone else, most likely an assistant who takes out a trainer's license, and the horse keeps running. What kind of deterrent is that against doping a horse? Well, again, I, I want to make sure we're not conflating doping with controlled therapeutic medications. When it comes to doping, the Class A substances, those horses do go on the vet's list. Those horses are subject to scrutiny. And in some cases, they are, put on, they are determined to be ineligible for up to six months. So that strategy exists. I just, I think that because we have a spectrum of substances that we control, it, it is not a, a one-size-fits-all. Two high-profile trainers, Jason Service and Jorge Navarro, are among those under federal indictment for illegally medicating their horses. Those indictments have yeah. had horsemen saying things like, the industry needs to do better. In light of what we've just discussed, how do you reconcile the industry is doing in trying to rid itself of illegal medication? 
Well, I, I think we've made great strides, but obviously we have a lot of work left to do. This is, you know, nobody, nobody says mission accomplished, Brownie, here. We've, we've got new challenges every day. You know, in, in the case of the one substance that has been discussed extensively in the, the federal indictment cases, the, the SGF-1000, we're not able to detect it on a test. On the other hand, we've had several samples of it analyzed and uh, have no evidence for it to have the effect that it was purported to have. So, you know, there's plenty of snake oil out there. And just because somebody says a substance does something, that in and of itself, unless it's got FDA approval and has, has been determined to have a specific effect or side effect, duration of effect, known dose, that sort of thing, how, how do you address some of that? We can spend an awful lot of time chasing shadows here. What we need to do is find the stuff that is in use, that is impacting performance, find a way to test for it. More importantly, find a way to deter its use. How do you deter use? Cheaters always want to win. Everybody wants to win. The honest people want to win, too. I mean, that's the goal. You want to win. There are ways to deter people who would be inclined to look for a shortcut or flat-out cheat. You know, some of that is out-of-competition testing. We need to do more of that. That is, a, that is a deterrent. I mean, Rick Arthur has said a number of times that the testing program, if you catch somebody, in a way it's a failure because your goal is to deter people from cheating in the first place. They should have enough concerns about getting caught and the consequences of getting caught that they make the decision it's not worth the risk. So that involves not just testing, that involves surveillance, that involves random searches of facilities, that involves a lot of labor and a lot of effort. If, if the only thing we rely on is drug testing, it is a failed strategy from the start. Dr. Mary Scalay is the executive director of the Racing Medication and Testing Consortium. Thank you so much for sharing some insight with us on this. Thank you for having me. One other note, by the way, about the whole transferring the horse to another trainer during a suspension thing. Dr. Scalay also points out that many states have rules that allow them to assign penalties to everyone who is determined to have played a part in a medication violation. So, an owner could be fined or suspended if the facts bear out that person's involvement or knowledge of the situation. Presumably, an assistant trainer could be too. What if you could lock in the odds you get on a horse even if the tote board says the odds are changing? It might just happen here in the United States. We'll get into that when the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In The Gate. Have you ever bought stock options before? Have you ever bought futures traded on an exchange? If you have, you've locked in a price for your purchase and then hope the market moves the commodity's price either up or down to favor you. As most of you undoubtedly know, betting on horse racing in this country is done using a paramutual system. What that basically means is that all bets are placed together in a big pool of money, and the odds for each horse are calculated by all the bets on him or her, if that horse were to win the race. The final odds, and therefore the final payout, is not determined until the pool is closed. In other words, when the race starts. 
The paramutual system is different from what's called fixed odds wagering, where the payout is set when the bet is made. Could be three days before the race. So let's say you bet on a horse at 8 to 1 in a fixed odds system. Then, a ton of money is bet on that horse afterward, and the paramutual odds go down to 7 to 1. You still lock in your 8 to 1 odds because you bet using a fixed odds system. Fixed odds wagering has been in place in Australia and Great Britain mainly. British racing is mainly done through fixed odds, with modest success. Australia, though, has seen huge upticks in wagering using fixed odds. From 2012 to 2017, fixed odds wagering on Australian racing nearly doubled, which also led to a near 25% increase in race purses. But the system has not been available here in the United States. If the state of New Jersey issues regulatory approval, though, the service will be rolled out at Monmouth Park shortly. Monmouth will be working with a company called PointsBet, an Australian sportsbook service, to offer fixed odds wagering. And for a little more insight into it, we welcome to In the Gate Seth Young, the chief innovative officer for PointsBet. Fixed odds wagering has been in place in the UK for quite a while, and more recently in Australia, with differing degrees of success, depending on the agreements among horsemen, tracks, gamblers, etc. So which is more important to success? the concept of fixed-odds wagering, or the agreements among the stakeholders? Larry, I think it's a great question, and both are equally important. If you look at things, take a step back and look at things holistically in in Australia versus the United States. When fixed-odds racing was introduced in Australia in 2007, the racing market at the time was handling around $15 billion in wagers. And that increased 30% over the previous year, which was $11 billion. And over the next 10 years, as fixed odds racing was proliferating throughout the country, the market spiked to about $24 billion in wagers, which was about a, a 46% increase. And at the same time in the United States, where there was no fixed odds wagering and only paramutual wagering, there was a 30% decrease from $15 billion to $11 billion in turnover. And, and look, in Australia, there was a lot of collaboration amongst the stakeholders from the tracks to the bookmakers to the government to make sure that this was successful. And in turn, that created more fans over time, which has led to an industry that's now 3.3 billion of the 4.4 billion racing and sports wagering sector in the country. So in the United States, horse racing is, is highly political, as you know, as we all know, um, and it's controlled and fractured by a lot of different groups within the country. But I think we can all agree that the status quo is pushing things in the wrong direction. So, you know, Dennis Drayton at Monmouth Park has been a trailblazer, not only for sports, but for racing. And on this issue, I think time is on his side, you know, as, as he's made an agreement with bet makers and by proxy points, bet has made an agreement with bet makers to, to signal its intent to offer fixed odds racing in the country. And so to the extent that stakeholders across the country are able to come together and embrace this new form of wagering that should engage a new demographic and effectively grow the market, I think we have a bright future ahead of the sport. Else it might go the way of Highlight, and nobody really remembers Highlight anymore, do we? Now, you've said that you know what did and did not work in the fixed odds rollout in Australia, politics probably being a component of that, but can you expand on that topic? Sure. I think if you look at things holistically, Barry, the wagering mechanics between fixed odds betting and paramutual wagering are completely different. One is pool betting where you don't lock in a price 
until the jump. And one is fixed odds racing where you know what your price is. There's trust and transparency in the market from the outset. You know, in the United States, there's such a prolific black market for sports wagering. And over the last, you know, 28 years, I suppose, the black market in the United States has been easily accessible. And United States citizens have been trained on how to bet six odds, not just in Las Vegas, but but in this black market. And now that we see sports wagering uh, proliferating throughout the country with so many tailwinds, you have an entirely new demographic that understands fixed odds wagering styles, but may not necessarily understand paramutual. I'm going to give you an example. So I've been in gaming now for 16 years, and I'm not saying that I know everything about gaming, but long enough to, to understand what different kinds of forms of wagering are. When I first went to see a horse race down in Kentucky some years ago, I had no idea how to make a bet. Now, I'm 36 years old. I'm, a, I'm on the tail end of the millennial generation. Still a millennial, but if I don't know how to make that kind of bet, how can we reasonably expect somebody within my generation or younger to understand how to make that kind of bet? You know, I understand fixed odds betting. I didn't necessarily understand paramutual. It was a terrible first experience for me. I just gave my money to the cashier and said, hey, make me a ticket. That ticket won, by the way, but every bet that I tried to make on my own, it didn't win. I lost. I had no idea what I was doing. So I think you take a step back and it's less about the stakeholders and less about the politics and more about what the customer wants. At the end of the day, the customer wants trust and transparency. They want ease of use. You know, in this case, fixed odds racing takes something with such a strong and rich culture and history in horse racing, and it makes it more relatable and consumable for a demographic that historically has not been a horse racing fan. So I think that is the biggest reason for success, accessibility of technology, familiarity and products coupled with something so exciting like horse racing. On the surface, though, what it seems like is I get eight to one and it's not going to change. And that's about it. The architecture underneath it might be lost to most consumers. So why is this supposed to be such a better system that it's going to open up all kinds of more revenue? Well, I think for the reasons I've highlighted, Barry, you know, I, I'm not sure that the demographic that currently enjoys betting on paramutual wagering is growing. It seems to me that bookmakers across the United States, and I guess more broadly, as you look at Australia and, and other countries, they've been able to successfully engage the next generation of consumer, which, you know, horse racing by all accounts, at least from my vantage point in the USA, hasn't really been able to do that successfully. Now, we can argue about what the reason is, you know, is it because the races aren't exciting? I don't think so. Is it because it's not on TV? Maybe. A lot of tracks are in disrepair. Is it because the experience is bad? I don't know. But at the end of the day, what I do know is that you know, fixed odds wagering makes uh, makes for a more accessible experience for folks that are trained and in tune to this sort of thing. There's a lot of innovation that you can do around this, like boosted odds, things that get people excited uh, around sports betting more generally. So, look, I think once you get people to a race, it's very easy to fall in love with the sport. But getting people to a race is premised on having a strong value proposition for them. And when you can't understand what a trifecta is or an exacta is or what win place show even means because there's been no education, yeah, you need, you need a, a different kind of education and you need different kinds of underlying mechanics that can help drive some people to, um, to this sport. So, you know, if you just look at the numbers, I think what we see out of Australia is showing that whatever has changed there is working. And the only difference really between the U.S. and Australia in terms of the market is the collaboration amongst the stakeholders and the fact that fixed odds racing exists. 
But don't you still have win-play-show betting with fixed odds? What is different in that regard? Sure. I think what it is is just the trust and transparency factor. You know, paramutual wagering is very easy to manipulate. And in fact, a huge portion of the global handle is from professional bettors and professional syndicates. One might argue that the retail consumer, the average consumer that's betting into a paramutual pool is losing at such a strong clip that it's not sustainable. And the only people that are really making money out of this are the pros um, and the sites that are taking out so much revenue from each wager itself. So, look, I think the, the major difference is that you have that trust and par- transparency. You know exactly what you're going to get. Your price can't be manipulated and you're betting against, betting against the book, so to speak, that's going to be able to take position and offer you that, that experience that you're looking for, which is the one price, you know your bet, you go, you watch it, it's familiar, and it's pretty straightforward. Seth Young of Australian Sportsbook Points Bet joins us here on In the Gate. Now, the takeout structure is different with fixed odds as opposed to pools. 20% for pools, sportsbooks probably take less. So if they take less handle with fixed odds than the tracks offering power mutual wagering, then clearly the sportsbook operator thinks he can more than make up the difference in the volume of bets. But we've seen all kinds of resistance here in this country to lower takeout. I mean, tracks also still use a system called breakage, where the payouts are not exact. They are rounded down. So for our audience, if you, the horse player, should get a $4.13 payoff from a bet, you get just four ten. The track keeps the rest, which really isn't fair to the horse player. So that said, Mr. Young, when you see tracks with high takeout rates and breakage, what makes you think that tracks other than Monmouth Park will be willing to sign fixed odds agreements with lower takeout now when it hasn't been done before? Now, Barry, it's a great question. And we're in a scenario where the status quo has been exist- in existence for so long. But if you look at things holistically, really here in a story as, as old as time, there are new generations of people interested in new kinds of gambling entertainment, gambling responsibly. But they have more choices today than they did 30, 40 or 50 years ago. When horse racing started in the United States, there were no slot machines. There was no esports. There was no prolific style casino gaming like we see today. Consumption habits shift, interests shift, new inventions are made. And with horse racing, it's been the same amazing sport. But now the, the betting mechanics are different and entertainment styles are different. So on the aggregate, I have a hard time seeing how this would be bad for tracks in the long term. And honestly, the fact that racing is subsidized in New Jersey and many other states kind of speaks to the state of the market. So people really love horse racing, but it's just not thriving like it once was. Otherwise, it really wouldn't be subsidized. So look, the takeout rates for parimutuel betting are definitely higher than the margins with fixed odds, but things appear to be trending in the wrong direction. And as the old saying goes, 100% of nothing is still nothing. So yeah, with fixed odds, you're banking bets rather than taking a percentage of each bet without risk you have a higher risk exposure as a book. Absolutely, that's true. But the increased interest in the sport would invariably drive market growth, as is clearly evidenced by the results in the Australian market, which we've already discussed. So um, the market in Australia is $3.3 billion. It's a major revenue opportunity for these tracks, many of which are in disrepair. Some are flourishing, many are not. But you need money to take care of these horses. You need money to sustain jobs. You need money to create amazing experiences at these tracks. And from where I'm standing, everything appears to be going in the wrong direction. I say, why not? You know, what better time than now? 
to try to introduce this as online gaming has great tailwinds from the proliferation of sports betting around the country. I mean, when things change, how can we expect everything else to stay the same when everything is different around us? In Australia, 10 or 15 years ago, people weren't necessarily growing up with racing and betting on it. Sports, on the other hand, exploded. But since fixed odds has been introduced to the market, in Australia, young people are growing up with horse racing again. My parents grew up with horse racing. My grandparents grew up with horse racing. I grew up with an Xbox and computer games. I grew up with major casinos. I didn't grow up betting in the track. So if we want to see this industry sustained for the future, things have to change. We need to engage people like me, people my age, people younger than me that can understand the beauty of what it is to be at a horse race, experience the thrill of picking a horse and making a bet and making the win. But none of that happens when you can't understand how you make a bet in the first place. Oh, by the way, I grew up with Atari and in television, by the way. If U.S. <laughs> tracks resist fixed odds wagering now and sports books like you make deals with, say, overseas tracks, would that eliminate or significantly diminish the odds that sports books would eventually come back to U.S. tracks down the road? In other words, do you see there being a window for U.S. tracks to get on board? You know, I don't really want to opine on what the future might hold in in certain scenarios that haven't happened. But what I can say, Barry, is that I think there's a great opportunity for tracks across the country to adopt this style of betting. There's a lot of sophistication around this, and there's a lot of experience, especially with a bookmaker like PointsBet coming out of a flourishing market in Australia, where we have learned incredible lessons, lest history repeats itself in the United States. So, you know, there are major groups in the U.S. who have strong businesses on the tote side. I don't see a world where this doesn't augment their business. But look, it's within the interest of every track to choose however they like to proceed in this fashion. And we're very excited to have the opportunity to at least start booking fixed odds racing in New Jersey pending all approvals. And we're very excited for what the future can hold in the United States in the broader market. I want to get back to something you were talking about before. In 2018, after the PASPA Act ruling by the Supreme Court, Monmouth Park was the first to open a sports book at the racetrack. And in so doing, Monmouth offered unique parlays by combining a race bet with a football game. And part of the reason they could do that is because with fixed odds, They could offer odds on a race as soon as the entries came out, which cannot happen quite so early with paramutual wagering. So first, before I get to my main point, can you please explain why that is? I think that's a better question for Dennis Drazen, who runs the track over there. I mean, for our part, we're uh, very pleased to be operating in New Jersey and booking sports bets within the state. I'm doing a great job at that. All right. Well, the point of all that is... If and when you roll out fixed wagering at Monmouth, how much do you see these kinds of multi-sport parlays, a football game with a race, being on the betting menu? That's a very exciting proposition. Look, to the extent that, that a book like us can tie multiple, uh, multiple sports and, and parlays to fixed odds racing, that's just a great way to cross over a consumer that might be an NBA fan and then tie it to, like, to the Haskell, for example, at Monmouth Park. The only limit is our imagination once everything is approved. I think what bookmakers have shown throughout history, really, is you start with a product that is permeates the fabric of a culture in sporting events and sports and booking sports. And from there, once you have the attention of people, you can kind of go out and do whatever makes sense. So, you know, to the extent that fixed odds racing has that support in the United States that we're hoping it does, 
you know, bookmakers like us, we're aiming to reach a lot of folks that are interested in sports betting, an interest of recapturing the major black market, an interest of creating new revenues in each state, creating jobs. And especially now where states are facing major budget deficits, helping plug some of those gaps by booking an activity that has long been illegal and is now legal and safe in a regulated environment. It's good for consumers. So I guess my point is, this is already happening. Um, Illegal sports betting is happening across the country. Bookmakers are recapturing that market. And to the extent that bookmakers reach scale recapturing this market, the horse racing industry can really be served well by having those interested sports bettors take a look at this new sport that they may not have been engaged with prior. So bottom line, for example, what kind of estimate do you give for a bump in betting at Monmouth alone, as an example, with fixed odds wagering? Yeah, I can't really speak to the exact numbers that Monmouth might might hit. But look, I think broadly speaking, in the United States, an $11 billion market in terms of turnover going in the wrong direction. We saw the market increase by just under 50% in Australia over 10, uh, over 10 years after the introduction of fixed odds racing alongside Tote. I don't think it's unrealistic for the United States to have a market that's much larger than the 20 to $25 billion in turnover market that Australia is seeing but it does require an effort from a lot of people. So I do think there's a major opportunity. I do think horse racing can be great again. I think the 15 to 11 billion decline is largely attributable to all the things that we have just discussed, but I don't think it's unrealistic to see this number uh, being much larger than the Australian racing industry with the support it requires. Well, when I see you offer fixed odds wagering on the color of the queen's hat, I'll know I'm really back in Great Britain at Royal Ascot. But until then, we'll see how this works. But thank you so much, Mr. Young, for your insight here. Very exciting development. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barry, for having us. Our thanks once again to Seth Young and Dr. Mary Scalay. We're waiting for a vaccination to rid us of COVID-19. But if you follow racing, then you'll know that applying this sport's principles to our everyday routines will make that dreaded virus eat some crow. When multiple horsemen put in claims for the same horse, there's a shake, a blind draw, and the name that's pulled will win. You can do the same to decide who goes to the supermarket or anywhere else. That way, the crowds stay thin. A rider has lots of pairs of goggles to flip off as each gets muddy. You can turn that into a game that's lots of fun. Put on eight masks in the morning and just flip off one at a time. By dinner, you won't even know you're wearing one. And of course, a horse takes long walks after workouts, followed by baths. There's nothing saying we can't do the same. So if we follow best practices from the world of horse racing, we'll put this stinking coronavirus to shame. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. We can even play the role of coronavirus to the folks at America's Best Racing. They apparently don't want us to find them, but we're going to get them nonetheless. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope this finds you safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.